I think that like the future of parks rests on rule breakers, like people who break the rules and make parks their own and make parks more democratic and match the needs of people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Environmentalism, a podcast that tells past and present stories about urban nature in New York City. I'm Amanda Martin-Hardin, an environmental historian studying at Columbia University, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Maddie Abbey, an archaeology student at UCLA, and Prim Tucker, a historian and journalist who also studies at Columbia. Today, we're joined by Dr. Marika Plotter. They are a visiting assistant professor of history at Dickinson College, and they study what low-income New Yorkers did for fun outdoors during the 19th century. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you guys are going to as well, because Dr. Plotter gets into not just the history of parks and how they came to be in New York City, but how people actually used park spaces and how often that put them in tension or conflict with other New Yorkers and often with city officials like politicians and police officers. So we're going to go on a really interesting time-traveling excursion, if you will, through local public parks, ferries, streetcars, beer gardens, pleasure grounds, and steamboats and waterfront excursions, all kinds of ways that ordinary New Yorkers experienced the outdoors in the 19th century and what those spaces meant for them both personally and politically. So I think this is a really cool episode. And one thing on Dr. Plotter's website that I love is they say that they are interested in broadening the story of nature's role in human life. And I think their work does that really well. And it helps us see some of the similarities in the through lines that we see still points of tension in public parks in New York City into the 21st century with regard to who is allowed to inhabit these spaces, what should they be used for when we think about unhoused populations, or you know, what's the quote-unquote correct way to be in a public park. So there's a lot for us to think through here. It's a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation, so let's just get into it. I think one thing that is really delightful, but also surprising about studying New York history is just imagining like the similarities and differences when we go back in centuries. So can you just start with sort of helping us paint a picture about the physical environment of New York City in the early 19th century? What was it like? What were the parks like? What might current New Yorkers or people visiting New York find familiar or sort of different than today? In the early 19th century, New York City was a small city clustered near the tip of Manhattan Island. And everyone kind of lived close together, rich and poor, on different streets maybe, but close to each other. And there were small industries, there were stores, shops, little cobbled streets full of garbage and manure. And everyone kind of shared these environmental burdens equally. Uh, The sanitation problems impacted everybody. And in that context, there were some parks, um, little preserves of fresh air. And the two main parks were the Battery and uh, the park at City Hall, which are, are both there still. And both of these parks were former commons, which meant that they were places where everyone kind of had the right to forage or graze their livestock or beat their carpets. And so they're places of leisure, but also places of domestic work. And as these parks became parks from commons, they were changing. They were getting fenced in, and there were places where increasingly these labor practices, these household practices were being pushed out. And the people driving that transformation were the wealthiest residents. They were looking for these kind of refined sites of leisure in nature. They didn't want people drinking or partying or protesting there. They wanted to enjoy the beauty of nature and not really do much else. So there are these struggles happening over these common lands where people accustomed to using the lands like commons were trying to make parks like commons, uh, do all of the practices that they were accustomed to there, using these lands for their subsistence and um, just to make life a little bit easier. And so there's these battles taking place there. 
in the 1820s, things start to change a little bit. The balance in these struggles over parks started to change too. The city was industrializing. It was becoming a major international port. And with that, um, many, many immigrants um, from Europe were coming to the city and they also had histories of using common lands. And so they sort of joined the working class ranks of people who wanted to use these parks in a more, um, more unrestrained, freeform way. And so in the 1820s, there are wealthier New Yorkers starting to move away from lower Manhattan, trying to get away from the diversity and, and also the environmental problems that were continuing there, sanitation issues that only got worse as this density increased. So working people were sort of taking control of these parks that were created by elites um, and, and doing what I call like the three P's there. They were partying, they were peddling, and they were protesting. These are all activities that um, wealthy people had not wanted to uh, happen in these parks, but that were part of a working class culture. You know, it's so interesting about that. I mean, we talked to Catherine McNair about Central Park a little bit. And in that instance, you see almost there's obviously a lot of similarity in terms of the class conflict that you're discussing. But it feels a little bit opposite because Central Park was more this process of like gentrification and pushing working people off of that land. But this is an interesting reversal of like working people sort of like claiming these green spaces and using them how they wanted to. So I didn't know that, that was happening in the early 19th century in Manhattan. Yeah, I love Catherine McNorris' work so much, and and she does such a wonderful job of explaining environmental inequality and like how parks being were used as tools of development and land values, and that meant that they were in, unequally distributed. But I'm trying to think about the parks that already existed and were created for the wealthy, but then due to demographic change, they become these working class parks. And I think that people always make parks their own, and that's what was happening at the Battery and the Park at City Hall. Um, it's it's people making parks into the kinds of places that they wanted to hang out and really violating the, the dreams of the wealthy people who created the parks in the first place. And that would also happen eventually with Central Park too. It would just take a little while longer because Central Park was so far uptown. That is so fascinating. Marika, as you're describing these public spaces and then the sort of contestation something that kept sticking out was how they were packed together, small, clustered, everyone's kind of bumping shoulders. So I have to imagine there were there were certain moments that kind of stuck out where you, whether it's the peddling, the protesting, or the partying that really stuck out in your research. What, can you point to any sort of specific moments or events that kind of illustrated these tensions in these public spaces? Yeah, thanks. I found this newspaper article from um, New Year's Eve of 1826, and it's about a Calathumpian band. And what that is is a group of people who would just parade the streets on New Year's Eve and make a ton of noise. They're working class people, mostly men. They're banging on broken kettles. They're like, have they have horns, they have firecrackers. And they just pretty much make like a terrific racket like all night long. <laughs> and in this case, this is a normal thing. This happened every New Year's Eve. But what happened this time was that they marched down to the battery. And when they got there, they started like banging at the fence that was surrounding this park and trying to tear it down. And they couldn't do that. It was made of really strong iron. And so they turned around and they faced the build the buildings that were owned by wealthy residents, luxurious homes that were fronting the park. And they started breaking windows and destroying like the, the property of these buildings. And the newspaper was reporting this as just... Um, like a senseless act of an unthinking mob. This was just like an unexplainable act of property damage. And it was just making a lot of trouble for the city. But I tried to think a little bit about why the Calathumpian band acted in this way. And I learned about how this fence, this strong iron fence was new. Before that, it had been a wood fence, and it was a kind of rotten wood fence. And so people could kind of squeeze in when the park was supposed to be closed. Um, their their free-range livestock could get into the park and graze and root around. There'd be pigs that would be rolling um, through the dirt. 
Um, and, and so there was just this kind of freedom of people to come and go and their animals to come and go. And so it made sense to me why this band would come and try to attack this railing, which was really trying to um, keep them from using this place the way that they wanted to. And when they couldn't take this railing down, they turn around and they attack the homes of the people who were really behind a lot of these changes in the city. The people who were trying to fence these commons and turn them into parks where no one was allowed to do anything. So I think that that's this moment where we can read resistance into something that the newspapers of the time saw as just this like weird thing that this these bunch of hooligans did. Really, I think it was it was about um, people trying to assert another way of using land and sharing space. There's like a few different trends of of resistance and contestation that like Amanda was alluding to versus like, you know, development of parks like Central Park kind of taking away land that, you know, working class and poor people think of as, as you know, conventionally theirs versus um, sort of shared spaces by virtue of everyone being packed together. And all of a sudden it feels like it's slipping away from people. There's different sort of flavors of this contestation, if you will. But what about parks in particular make it such that these protests and demonstrations even happen in the first place versus, you know, just focusing on property, for example? What what about parks is specific, do you think? Yeah, this is something I'm really trying to untangle. And what I'm noticing is that parks always had a political function before they even were parks. So like if we think back to like pre-revolutionary times, um, the Sons of Liberty would meet at the commons that would become the park at City Hall. And that was where they erected liberty poles and struggled with uh, British soldiers who were trying to take the poles down. So these places were kind of, had kind of always had these functions. Um, they had a lot of functions, um, you know, subsistence, rest, re- recreation, enjoying nature, but also this political function. And so that stayed as these lands became parks. Um, there are also things about like parks are visible. They're places that like if people are gathered in a building and expressing themselves, um, that's different than than doing it in public where people can see it. And then parks often are close to government buildings. So City Hall being right at City Hall Park is, it makes City Hall Park like probably the most important political space um, of the 19th century. And this was especially important for people who didn't have much political power. So City Hall Park was like the main protest place for Black New Yorkers, and very few of them could vote um, due to a racist exclusion that was built into the passage of universal white male suffrage uh, in 1821. Black men had to own property in order to vote. So there's very low voter rolls in the Black community, but protesting right at City Hall is a way of making concerns clear to leaders who might not be otherwise interested in listening. So there's like the the visibility, the proximity to, to government. But then there's also just like public space is kind of intense. It's like uh, public space by definition belongs to the public. And who the public was, was a really contested idea. Like who is counted in this? And so I see a lot of different people trying to use parks um, in a lot of ways. And, and by doing that, like really claiming their membership in the public, say like the, the like 1820s to 1860s, um, on one day, the park at City Hall would be where Black New Yorkers would be resisting um, kidnappings by Southern enslavers who would come up to the city and steal people and try to take them south to slavery. And really the only way that um, Black New Yorkers could protect their community was to fill this park and try to free people as the police officers were taking them into the building for the shoddy trial they were entitled to before the, before they were taken. And sometimes they did, like they were able to free people either temporarily or permanently. So they're doing that some days. On other days, there are anti-abolitionists meeting in that same park to say that New York City must support Southern slavery. On other days, there would be protests by nativists saying that immigration restrictions were necessary. And then on other days, there would be pro-immigrants rights protests. There would be protests for working white working men who were saying that they needed a breadwinning wage so that they could support their um, 
their wives and children and they wouldn't organize with women workers because of that idea that like men and white men in particular should be these breadwinners. But then still on more days, there would be uh, white women workers who would be organizing for fair wages for themselves. So there are all these different groups of New Yorkers in this diverse and divided city using the parks as a place to really say like that they were part of the public, they had a right to speak, they had a right to rights, or they were speaking out about other people's rights, trying to build their, their own selves up by casting others out. Tremendously complicated spaces, but I think that the park, the parks sort of fostered this communication because they're these common grounds that everyone shared across differences. Well, it seems like, you know, your formulation there really convinces me that it's not just public spaces, but specifically parks that seem to be just like the perfect barometer for a country's politics insofar as, you know, it's not just places of protests and demonstrations, but also, I mean, nature and recreation. Those are also, of course, political questions in a certain sense and who has access to those in the first place. So that was a very amazing formulation. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I also feel that like different people just coming into the park and claiming their right to have leisure there, like that was political in its own way. And I think that that's why parks are so powerful. They, they had all of these different functions and they were important to everyone, but in different ways. So in your research, you coined this phrase, quote unquote, downtown environmentalism. And I was wondering if you could tell us what that means and perhaps give an example of that. I didn't expect to find this, but I, I ended up finding it. I noticed that um, working people and particularly immigrants many times through the 19th century would defend their local parks and they would have protests, they would circulate petitions, and they would really speak to the value that these places had to them. But they weren't just talking about the environment or preserving the trees. They were talking about these landscapes as being important for many reasons, for health, um, places to breathe fresh air, which at the time was viewed as really key to health. They're places of pleasure uh, for people who had really difficult lives and very little leisure and very little time for joy or relaxation. But they're also talking about just the importance of these sites for freedom of expression. You know, the, the rights to freedom of speech and assembly are only meaningful if there are places to speak and assemble. And they were speaking to that too. And so they're really um, valuing landscapes for a host of reasons. And they were also talking quite a bit about inequality and injustice. They would point out that poor people had fewer parks than wealthier people did, and that these parks had less maintenance, that they looked a little shabbier. I started seeing these kinds of complaints happening around mid-century, and they only grew louder with time. By the 1870s, um, there were a number of just growing protests to defend some of these parks. Um, and I think I'd like to talk about the battery at the tip of Manhattan Island which in 1876 became the site of an elevated railroad. These were sort of a, an early attempted solution to solve the rapid transit problem as the city was growing and there were many commuters living uptown and working downtown. And these commuters were calling on their leaders for a faster way to get to their jobs. And rather than investing in public transit, the city gave incentives to private companies to erect these uh, coal-powered railroads that would hover above the streets and pretty much fill the air with smoke, drop like burning oil and like embers on people below. There are a lot of lawsuits that followed these railroad tracks, as you can imagine, because they were harming property values, uh, pedestrians were getting hurt. And so the company started uh, asking for public lands because it was getting difficult to be near private property. And the city agreed. They gave uh, a railroad company the right to run over the battery. And this prompted a protest of about a thousand people who gathered near the battery. They had speeches. They had a brass band. They marched into the park carrying an effigy of a park commissioner. And they held a mock execution of him. And everyone kind of laughed these activists off. They were saying like they're anti-progress um, because they're immigrants. They don't get that we need this transit system. And there's a sense that the battery wasn't important. It was known as the poor man's park. It was a place that was known to be pretty shabby because it was 
starved of funding that really generally went uptown to parks in wealthier neighborhoods. Um, and so no one really listened to them. But over time, these, uh, this kind of action got uh, more and more prominent. Uh, by the 1890s, there was a mass movement that worked to try to kick the elevated railroad out of the battery. It was still led by immigrants and still making, so people were still making some of the same arguments. They were calling out inequity. They were talking about how poor people had the biggest need for fresh air and relaxation. Um, parks were the most important for them, even though they had the fewest parks. And they also started talking about rights. They were saying that everyone has the right to, to equally access parks, which was a really new idea. We know from Catherine McNor's work that parks were pretty much explicitly through much of the 19th century made for wealthy people. The whole point is you build a park and then wealthy people will move nearby and it raises property taxes and that's good for the city. And so this idea that poor people like deserved access to parks, it was new. And I think that these conversations that activists in the 19th century were starting remain really important today as we're looking at a park system that is just totally unequal. We can see that our like biggest and best maintained parks have conservancies. Um, they're funded by the neighborhoods that uh, that surround them, and that means that that these are the wealthy parks. And in COVID nineteen, like it was just so clear when like green space was the only place that we could be together and gather that like wealthier and whiter New Yorkers have that right so much more than than they should. It's it's every, everyone deserves this. So yeah, I, I see this idea of like access to parts as a right as part of a conversation that's ongoing and, and an important one that hasn't been solved yet. I definitely want to like circle back to this idea of like thinking through um, parks and equal access and inequity and stuff today. Yeah. I want to put a pin in that because I think that's really yeah. interesting what you're saying. But I did want to ask you about your article. So you have this article in case any readers want to go read it. It's called New York City Parks as Historical Battlegrounds Between Black Equality and White Supremacy. And you had this really, to me, interesting line where you said, parks could be places where New Yorkers glimpsed racial equality and even harmony, which is precisely why racists use their fists to keep Black people away. And I just I would love to hear you say a little bit more about this. On the one end, how did parks serve as spaces of racial equality? Because to me, that was really interesting and intriguing. Sometimes I think we tend to think of history in this very linear way where it went from like very unequal to more equal. But I think you're painting a much more complex picture of like processes of contestation um, and sort of different values happening. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear you speak more about that. Yeah, I, I found a lot of evidence of white people attacking and harassing black people in parks um, and, and Chinese American people as well. Um, and, um, you know, like pushing people down, hitting them, um, just like acts of violence in these public spaces and white people really trying to define the public in, a, in an exclusionary way. But black New Yorkers never gave up these parks, like never, and they would, they would face this violence to claim their equal right to use these places for, for rest and leisure, protest, recreation. And because of that, there started to be interesting scenes happening around the park. In 1857, the New York Tribune um, noted that in the park at City Hall, white and black children were playing together every day. And the, this newspaper um, used these scenes as evidence that, um, this is a quote, the prejudice of color is acquired or imbibed, not natural and instinctive. And so they're, they're pretty much saying that like kids uh, and kids, like kids playing together show that racism is constructed. It's not, it's not inevitable. It doesn't have to divide people the way that, that it does. These kinds of arguments still happen with viral videos of white kids and kids of color playing together. But in this era, like right on the cusp of the Civil War, this is like a it's a big deal of an observation. So there's this this glimpse of public space that really could serve a multiracial public. Like parks could be these places that people could share across their differences and maybe share with out possessiveness, letting people be there together in whatever way feels good to them. And because of that, that's part of what makes these parks so fraught. That's like what makes the violence in parks a strategy of white New Yorkers casting people of color out, 
trying to say that they don't belong in the public, that the public is white. Um, the people who are entitled to use these spaces, um, it's because of their whiteness. I think that that's what's really at like the heart of these struggles and the violence and also just the persistence of, of, um, of coming back and risk, risking um, is, was really this question of like, yeah, who's the public and who does this land belong to if it belongs to the public? You also wrote about and previously spoke about how the park at City Hall became a significant political site for tons of different demographics in the 19th century. And so I think taking it back a little bit, like when did this location become a park? Because as you mentioned, it was a commons. And like, what was that transition like? And how did the construction of like this new quiet leisure space sort of signify like the class politics that were happening at that time? Yeah, so what's now the park at city hall was once known as the fields and it was really like past the edge of town. Um, and as a commons, it was a place where people, uh, gathered building materials like sod and lime. They would graze their livestock there. Um, the African burial ground was at the edge of the commons and it was a place of celebration. It was, um, the site of pinkster where, um, Black people from all around the region would would come, whether free or enslaved, for for just days of partying in this spot. It was a place of protest. It served a bunch of different functions um, for the people of New York. It also served government functions. That was where the gallows was. There was a prison there, an almshouse there. And so it's this very complicated spot of like state power, but also resistance. Many different people using the space in different ways. And this became increasingly unacceptable to elite New Yorkers who were hoping um, near the turn of the 19th century for uh, quiet pastoral scenes where they could romanticize nature. This was kind of like a cultural fad uh, was, was this um, a way of seeming respectable is to appreciate nature. And so wealthy people are looking for places where they can do that, where they can wander and gaze and look at the scenery, look at each other, check out each other's outfits, figure out who belongs and who doesn't. Um, and so they started this process of transforming the commons into parks. And so how they did that was first they started moving around the fields um, and they started calling the land the park. That shift in name was kind of like a first step. Um, and the next steps were making a fence around the fields and um, more steps were landscaping um, before the commons were self-seeded. They just had uh, whatever kinds of greenery just clung to life there. But now there were rose bushes planted and trees there started to be rules about kids not being able to play ball there, cattle not being able to graze there. With these new rules came a kind of newer sense that there needed to be a, like some kind of policing of this land. And this is really before there's any kind of police force. And Americans were very concerned about police through much of the early 19th century. Um, they were worried that a standing army would suppress uh, constitutional freedoms of speech and assembly. And so, so there was really this public opinion barrier to policing. But still, despite that, um, city leaders started hiring people to hang out at the park and prevent people from, from um, doing anything that was thought to ruin the nature or ruin in the atmosphere. And this didn't go super well um, there because there are so many people who relied on the commons. Um, they didn't have anywhere else to graze their animals. They didn't have anywhere else to beat their carpets or play. And so um, the history of this transition from commons to parks um, is really about like rule breaking and attempts to enforce uh, the elite version of what a park should be. And then the people who are accustomed to using this land as commons really continuing to do what do what they used to do. And that that there's this just kind of back and forth push and pull between these different ways of of, uh, of doing parks. That's so interesting, though. I mean, I hadn't even considered because the term park has always been part of my lexicon and like worldview, if that makes sense. So I hadn't even considered how it does have a very particular set of assumptions about behavior of like what you do in a park. So thinking about that transition from calling it like the commons to the park is really fascinating to me. Can I ask another side question too? What is pinkster? Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, 
Pinkster uh, derives from the Dutch Pentecost. And so it's this kind of springtime festival. And in when um, the Dutch colonized um, this, this region, um, it became a, a major black holiday. Like this was like the day when enslaved people had off from work and could even maybe travel. And so there were huge Pinkster celebrations, both in New York City, but there were also um, in the Hudson Valley and Albany. Um, so, so this holiday remained really important even after um, New Amsterdam became New York um, and, and continued to draw people for just pretty much like days of like partying and reconnecting with community. Um, and the place, the place where this happened was the fields, this common land. It's very cool. I'd never heard of that. Maddie, did I finish your question? You're talking about the transformation, like the er the earlier question. Did I, did I get yeah, that? Yeah, you finished it and then you ended on, and that's how the way that different people did parks. <laughs> uh, I thought it was great. <laughs> that was like the TLDR. Uh, yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I love that. You already began to talk about this just now in your previous answer. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how city officials push back against parks as public sites, as protest sites, even after they tried to make them sort of the commons to park transition. And you just talked about fences a little bit, but in your writing, you also discuss military drills and mass arrests. And so can you talk us through these uh, strategies a little bit more? And tell us how successful they were in quelling parks as political spaces. Politicians had to be pretty sneaky about their attempts to make parks less politicized. Um, because at that time, people were really touchy about freedom of speech and assembly. Like if, if people of early 19th century New York saw that today we have to get permits and we have to stay in little like cordoned off areas, um, free speech zones, like they would be horrified. And then seeing like teams of militarized police like surrounding us, this is like the nightmare, you know, this is, so we have to sort of like go back in time and think about a moment when politicians did not like the free speech happening in parks and were concerned about it. They were really concerned about revolution. They're especially concerned when working people gathered in the parks and talked about taking their muskets to Wall Street and shooting people until they got bread, which is things that they would say, right? Right under the nose of city hall. So politicians didn't like this, but they were sort of limited in their response because they could not seem to be um, pushing back against, uh, against democratic free expression. So when there's these kind of battles over what parks would be like, um, the, whether they would be refined sites of leisure or they would be places of work and protest and play, um, protest wasn't totally able to be stomped out like the mayor would send out broadsides that would be like please don't protest i don't think that's the way but at first this is like 1808 is um when i'm thinking of city officials could kind of um, express their displeasure but they couldn't really totally push protest out of the parks but what they did do was subtle changes sometimes even to the landscape that would sh like shape how people could use the parks like fences really made quite a difference um when fences couldn't be jumped over, that would like prevent people from gathering whenever they whenever they wanted to. And I'm also thinking about like unhoused people who would live in parks. And and um, there was this part of the Battery called Sleepy Hollow where people would would pretty much live during the summer. And city leaders, their attempts to push them out through the watchmen that they hired didn't work. Um, the fences didn't prevent Sleepy Hollow from being a place to live. And so the, the city's leaders ordered tons of manure and urban fill dumped over Sleepy Hollow and they landscaped it into paths and flower beds. So there's, there are these sort of changes to landscape that would prevent um, parks from serving all of the purposes that people had used them for before. So sometimes when there would be um, an especially radical protest where um, people gathered and talked about upending the urban order, lashing out against capitalism and employers and Wall Street, sometimes the way that the city would handle that would be by having the National Guard drill in, in the park um, like the next day to sort of show that it's, it's like the, the military is coming and like taking over this space of free expression. 
send it a, send a pretty clear message um, that authorities were watching this kind of activism. And there's no clearer example than um, the case of Tompkins Square, um, which by 1850 was the center of Klein Deutschland, which was a German-American community. And German immigrants were often politically radical. Uh, many of them had fled the failed revolutions of 1848. And so they arrived in the U.S. really ready to claim the freedoms of speech and assembly that they had been hoping for back at home. And so they made Tompkins Square just this like hotbed of radicalism where very powerful messages about redistributing wealth and making sure that everyone had what they needed. Tompkins Square was where those messages were shared. In 1866, though, the state legislature turned Tompkins Square Park into a military parade ground. They took its park status and changed it, gave it to the military. So what that meant was all the trees were felled, um, all the benches were, were uprooted, and soldiers stamped the, the turf to dust. So this place of leisure and politics, protest, peddling, and play um, was really turned into this showcase of state power. The 7th Regiment of the New York National Guard really took control of this, this space, and this was... Um, it was known as the Silk Stockings Regiment because these were the the wealthiest uh, the wealthiest soldiers that were in 19th century New York City, and they were often tasked with quelling riots or um, or other disturbances and upheavals. So by replacing this politicized radical space um, with a military drilling ground, really sent such a clear message to radicals to to stay in line. But that didn't mean that they did. The people of Klein Deutschland continued to go to Tompkins Square, especially at night when it didn't matter that it was this baking hot ground where like, you could see the shimmering steam off of this torn up earth. At night, though, it was cool and open. Um, and so they would hang out there, but they would also protest there and demanded their right to protest there. Um, so even after Tompkins Square lost its park status as a way to kind of constrain the politicization of the space, people refuse to give up their park. It's so interesting to think about like Tompkins Square Park in particular, because I mean, for people who have been now, it feels like, I don't know, now I'm feeling very conspiratorial, maybe, but it's like got a lot of very constructed walking paths and a lot of fencing. And there's not a lot of spaces compared to, say, a Washington Square Park that has more of that open space around the fountain to convene, which, not coincidentally, remains a huge protest space. Tompkins Square, which sounds like it had sort of more, like, radical moments in the 19th century, it, it just feels harder to convene there. I don't know. That's just my personal experience walking through. Yeah, this is not at all a conspiracy, because um, Tompkins Square was the site of really two famous riots, the first one was in 1874 when communists and working men met in Tompkins Square to call for aid during a really uh, devastating economic crisis. But they had had their uh, right to gather there revoked by the, the Parks Department the night before. They didn't know. So, so they gathered there and police arrived and just beat them brutally. So that was in 1874, and it really motivated the community to argue their uh, right to gather there. There was another riot in Tompkins Square Park in 1988, and this was at a moment when the East Village was gentrifying. Um, it had been uh, kind of abandoned during the fiscal crisis of the uh, of the 1970s and um, had become this place where many people lived in the park. People who, would, who were houseless lived in the park. There are also a lot of punks who would hang out there. People did drugs there and made art there. And people who started moving into the neighborhood uh, had a different idea about what this park should be like. And that raised some, some conflict, um, as you can imagine. The NYPD worked with some of these new residents to try to enforce a curfew on Tompkins Square that would um, mean that everyone had to leave at 1, 1 a.m., which meant that people couldn't live there anymore. There were a lot of protests from older community members who demanded that this park be open all the time, that it could remain this kind of refuge in the neighborhood. And on one of these uh, nights of these protests, the NYPD lashed out with extreme brutality. It was caught on camera. There was a really 
big outcry about what had happened. This event actually helped sort of shift the tide of public opinion towards thinking that the Civilian Complaint Review Board should be all civilians rather than housed within the NYPD. And after this moment, the curfew was was dropped, but there continued to be these struggles over, over Tompkins Square for about three years. The cops would come in periodically and try to push unhoused people out, evict them, throw away their tents and their, their possessions. People would move back in. Like this just like happened back and forth. What finally broke this stalemate was that the park was closed for a redesign. So large fences put up around the park. Um, the playground was changed so that it could only be for children and their parents. And the actual landscape of it was reshaped to sort of change the way that it had been used before. So this is something that city leaders have done multiple times is when people are using a park in a way that they don't like, changing the actual shape of the landscape. I'm sure some listeners are familiar with the term like hostile architecture in New York City in terms of making oh my God. certain spaces inhospitable for unhoused people and whatnot. But that, I'm glad to know that I'm not just paranoid about Tompkins Square Park and that, that the design does feel very <laughs> curated for a certain type of behavior there. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So, so backing track a little bit back to the 1870s, I think you said that in 1872, New York City became the first city in the U.S. to require permits for public meetings and processions. Was that an effective strategy on the part of the city? Did it sort of dampen the political possibilities of park spaces as a result? I mean, it just totally changed the way that protest worked. Because before 1872, people could protest whenever they wanted to, spontaneously, um, there was a limit to how much the police could push back against that. It was just, you know, the, the right to protest was, was protected. But adding the permits really added this layer of bureaucracy and made freedom of speech a lot more difficult to use. So there's this, this moment in 1874, so two years after this law was passed, um, when communists wanted to use Tompkins Square, they had to go now rather than just going there, they had to appeal to the parks commissioners for the right to gather there. But they did that. They got permission. And so they're all ready for the, to hold their protest on January 13th, 1874. But the, the night before, um, the police department went to the park commissioners and demanded that they revoke permission, that they prevent these communists from gathering to express their desire for aid and jobs during a, a terrible financial crisis. So the next morning, the protesters gathered as planned, but now the NYPD had a right to come in and attack them and brutalize them, beat them and arrest them. Most of the protesters didn't know that this permission had been revoked. And so this extra layer of bureaucracy added not just surveillance of city authorities having the right to say whose assembly is permitted and whose has, who's is, is illegitimate and not allowed, um, but it also really opened up the doors to brutality and repression. And we can see we can see that today too, where the permitting process, if someone wants to demonstrate in a park with more than 20 people, um, they still need to get permission from the parks commissioners. And it takes about a month um, and it costs $25 to apply. Um, if someone wants to use amplified sound, they have to apply to the NYPD. So there's like layers of like different offices that you have to work with. Um, and this is a big problem because often the injustice that needs activism and response happens really fast. You know, like a terrible video comes out, like some horrific injustice happens. People aren't going to wait a month. It has to be addressed right then, that day. And so when people go to express their dismay and horror at what's happened, the NYPD arrests and beats them. So I think that the permitting process has really constrained democratic free expression in the city and in a way that we can still feel today. I noticed this summer a lot of, um, a lot of protesters were ignoring the permitting process, go, meeting in parks, um, going through parks, and I thought that that was brave and wonderful, because I think that that's what parks should be. They should be these places where we can express ourselves at a moment's notice if need be, because that's, injustice doesn't happen on a schedule. <laughs> it's not something you can calendar in. Got that right. Even though it's not specifically parks related, um, something that you've researched um, is 
19th century steamboat excursions and what these retreats meant to Chinese Americans particularly. Could you maybe speak to the history of these excursions, the politics of them, and and why exactly Chinese and Chinese-American New Yorkers frequently did these excursions in the first place? So I'm going to get to this in a roundabout way. Please, so, yeah. <laughs> Whatever it gets us there. So, Much like a steamboat trip around the island of Manhattan. Oh, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> so my book is going to look at both public green spaces, but also private ones. Looking at all of the attempts to repress the way that public green space was used and and to define parks as places of quiet leisure um, helps explain why there were also many commercial gardens that working class New Yorkers went to throughout the 19th century. I study first pleasure gardens, which were kind of um, on the edges of the city in the in the 1830s, which which means they're a little past City Hall. Um, there's also one in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, then I study in the 1850s, there started to be beer gardens uh, operated by German immigrants um, that were uptown, like in the 100s and the 60s on the East River. And then in the 1870s, there started to be many um, steamboat excursion groves. So working people would uh, joined together to rent a steamboat and also a waterfront park um, for a, just a day of holiday. And at these, all at all of these destinations, there was just more leniency. People were able to drink and dance, have sex, organize, um, play, do all kinds of things that weren't allowed in parks in the city. Walk on the grass, which was not always allowed in in city parks. And what I noticed about Pleasure gardens and beer gardens, these kind of earlier commercial venues, is that they were segregated. People of color could work there, but they weren't allowed to enter as guests. But by the time we get to the excursion industry of the late 19th century, this is actually like a business. It's a whole network of of businessmen who own property outside of the city and they own steamboats. Um, And what they care about most of all is making money. And they start renting their their steamboats and their groves um, to people of color. So black advocacy organizations and churches started renting these um, these boats and groves, and also Chinese Americans did. And when I'm thinking about Chinese Americans using public parts in the city, the only evidence I found was um, of them working there, peddling candy and cigars, and often being really harassed. Like there are stories about kids tying their hair to the railings um, so that when they moved, they would, it would just be like horribly painful. There's also many of the protests that were against Chinese immigration that were sort of leading towards the Exclusion Act of 1882. Like these protests happened in parks. So parks were not a friendly place um, for Chinese Americans to hang out and, and experience leisure in. So they really seized the chance to go on steamboat excursions where they could get out of the city away from all of this harassment and enjoy a beautiful landscape of rest and leisure and fun without all of that. So Chinese Americans went on excursions. They also went to cemeteries in Queens, but I didn't find much, uh, much about them using public parks. Should I talk more about those excursions? If there's more to hear, I'd love to hear it. Something that I noticed about these Chinese American excursions is that they seem to really push back against the Chinese Exclusion Act, but in a kind of, in a, in a subtle, interesting way. So um, they start, these excursions started um, in 1883, which is the year after this, this horrific xenophobic law passed. And the, they're organized by Chinese American Sunday schools, which were white missionaries, um, women would um, teach English and, and Bible studies to Chinese American men. And so the students of these schools organized these excursions for their teachers, kind of to celebrate their teachers. And what was interesting about newspaper coverage of these events was that these excursions were, were revealing cooperation and friendship between white women and Chinese American men, when generally the, the newspapers and media was portraying people of Chinese descent as just forever foreign, they'll never belong here, there's nothing, like there's no common ground here. So the excursion kind of like pushes back against that a little bit. 
the excursion organizers invited a man of Chinese descent who was a professor and who wasn't technically, um, he, he would not be excluded under the Chinese Exclusion Act because he was not a laborer. The act at first really targeted uh, working class people. Um, but despite his, his status, um, he was prevented from landing. For many weeks, he had to live on the ship in the harbor. But the organizers also invited the person who had detained him, the person who was in charge of enforcing the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and so you can see this kind of interesting thing where the excursion organizers are inviting different people onto this boat and perhaps hoping that them being trapped on a boat all day together will, will create some interesting conversations. It sounds like the plot of like some sick sitcom. <laughs> 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 totally. <laughs> um. I guess on a less exciting or funny note, um, as you've made pretty clear in this discussion, as well as your articles, like issues of racism and classism are not new to parks, nor have they really subsided in the years that these parks have existed. And so I guess like one example of that is the now infamous interaction between Amy Cooper calling the police on Christian Cooper, an African-American birdwatcher in Central Park over the summer. And I feel like this became a really major flashpoint around this issue. But in what ways do we continue to see the inequitable social dynamics play out around the park spaces in New York City? Yeah, one big issue that's preventing parks from being the inclusive common grounds that our city needs is like unequal enforcement. Um, like I've drunk many a bottle of rosé in Prospect Park and I'm white and nobody has ever messed with me, but policing really targets people of color in the park who are breaking the same laws that I, I like to break. So that's one issue is like thinking, I mean, there's, there are rules that still prevent people from, from using parks however they want. And that's one thing is like what laws welcome people and which laws exclude people, like rules against sleeping in the park excludes unhoused people. But then there's this question of, of enforcing, like who, who is allowed to break the rules and who isn't. I'm teaching a course right now on the history of New York City parks um, at Bard Micro College. And my students who are all people of color, they talk about like bad vibes that they get in the parks that like that, like before the class even started, they could kind of feel that the places were not for them. And so for them learning the history of these spaces they learned like, indeed, like their the vibes that they were getting were right, like these these places weren't created for them. And so I think to, to change that to sort of address this feeling of exclusivity and unwelcomeness, like we have to grapple with the history a little bit and really think about like, if parks are for all of us, like, what should they look like? Where should they be? How should people feel in them? Is policing of these spaces making them safe and protecting the nature? Or are they making these places not public? And so I think that there, there are conversations that need to happen. I think I would also love to see some more like public reckoning with history. Um, my students had ideas about art exhibitions and installations in parks that would sort of expose the history of them and also just talk about how parks have been contested and how people have made parks their own. It's been a struggle, but that these parks are more beautiful, more precious and more important to all of us because of that. In the 19th century, white New Yorkers like used their fists to keep black people out of parks. And Amy Cooper, all she had to do was call 911 because of the way that policing works in the city. And um, she was explicit like about her threat to call to call the cops on an African-American man. She said that like she knew that the cops were there to make this space her space. Um, and so like all these issues are together, are all, all mixed together of like policing and parks and public space. Um, we have to root out a lot of, a lot of these like structural inequalities in order to make parks fulfill their full potential, um, as places for all of us. You know, you speak to the value of exposing people to history and having these conversations and, and really getting more people to understand how contested parks were just throughout history, but have there been any lessons or maybe historical moments or just ideals that you draw from everything that you've researched that more directly instructs you as to how we can achieve and accomplish this vision of equitable and accessible parks? You know, of course, as you say, it, it, there's a lot of intertwining problems with policing and 
and access and economic inequality generally. But are there certain philosophies or ideas that kind of instruct you when you think about these conversations? I think that like the future of parks rests on rule breakers, like people who break the rules and make parks their own mm. and make parks more democratic and match the needs of people. Um, because that's happened throughout history through the 19th century. Like if we think about the city's first parks and how they were really intended to be places of just strolling and gazing at nature and working people made these into very different kinds of places. They made them into community centers. Like they made parks into sites of refuge where they could recover from really oppressive lives and really difficult environmental conditions um, at the, in their homes and um, in their workplaces and on the streets. And that happened eventually with Central Park too. Even the, the biggest and most famous and fancy of parks, people started breaking the rules against walking on the grass in such high numbers that no one could stop them. And because of that, we can now walk on the grass. Central Park has this more lenient culture that kind of reflects this working and poor people's way of being outdoors. Um, a lot of things that everyone loves about parks today, the sports, the, the gatherings, the music, like all of these things were not part of the original vision of these sites. Um, so I think even though there's a lot of oppression in this history, the, the arc of parks bends towards, <laughs> bends towards justice, I guess. You're here. Cheers. <laughs> I love it. You know, you're making me think a lot about skateboarding. Mm -hmm. This is something I've just anecdotally observed in New York City parks, which I like to spend a lot of time in. You know, there's a lot of signs that restrict skateboarding through most of the parks in Manhattan, at least, that I've been in. But I've been noticing kids ignore it because they like skateboarding and it's fun. And like, what's the big deal? In my personal opinion. And I've been noticing, especially in the pandemic, it feels like there's been a lot less of resistance to teens skateboarding in the park. And then we've also seen parks, I think, just kind of give in and start saying, okay, let's build skate parks. Like let's allocate funding because clearly this is a need. And I just think that's an interesting little like micro example of how people just using parks how they want to can actually create pretty like profound changes to the landscapes and use. So I think another example of that in relation to the pandemic is um, the drinking in the park, like you mentioned, and just like open carrying alcohol um, in general, because it was something that was so not allowed, at least for people of color, like that's where you get the whole trope of like the paper bag. And then the minute we could only eat on the street, they had to be like, okay, I guess you can drink on the street. And then when you can drink on the street, I guess you can drink in the park. And now I just think it's one of those things where it's like, it's never going to go back. Like you let the cat out of the bag and like, there's no way that we're ever going to go back to people actually taking that seriously. Well, and I think people realize too, like nothing happened. Like it's fine. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> people can control themselves drinking in the park sometimes, you know? So, yeah. I say like, um, you know, in my project, I found a lot of moments of like, organized resistance like people coming together and protesting and petitioning in defense of parks and really saying why parks mattered and trying to shift the way that authorities treated parks but there are also so many moments of people bending rules and using parks as they wanted and th that was also very effective so so i'm seeing like all these different kinds of resistance shaping the parks um these places aren't just made by the people who design them and police them, they're, they're made by the people who use them every day and push back in their own subtle ways and, and, and shape these, these public lands for all of us. Absolutely. I could keep talking to you about this for hours. You know how much I love green spaces and, and these questions, these social applications. But before we do wrap, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered yet? I'll just say like one like little thing about parks. Like parks could be places for all of us where we could learn to be together, like in all of our difference um, and learn to share space in a not possessive way to like feel ownership of a space, but a shared ownership where we can all be invested, but use places differently um, and respect the way that other people use these spaces. And that has not been the way that parks have functioned through most of history, but I think they have that potential and I hope that someday they'll achieve it. I love that. It's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for joining us. 
I learned so much just listening to you. I mean, I am so 20th century skewed. I'm the very cliche, like post-Civil War, I got this. Yeah. But anything pre, I'm like, what happened? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so this was like a total education for me and it was really, really fun. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Have a nice to meet you all. Bye. You too. Bye. <laughs> Cheers. That is our episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Dr. Marika Plotter, for having such a fantastic conversation with us. You can follow Dr. Plotter's work there online on Twitter at Marika Reads. And you spell their name M-A-R-I-K-A. But this will also all be in the show notes today. Thank you, Maddie and Prim, as always, for being fantastic conversation partners. And shout out to the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center at Columbia University for generously funding this podcast. You can follow Everyday Environmentalism online. Keep up with what we're up to. We're on Twitter at Everyday underscore Enviro. And we're on Instagram at Everyday Environmentalism. Sorry that that's a bit of a mouthful, but it is what it is. Um, If you like what we're doing here, maybe you learned a thing or two. Maybe you're interested in New York history or the urban outdoors more generally or just environmental history. If any of those things sound like you, please like and subscribe and maybe even leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because the more engagement we get from our listeners, the more people will discover our podcast. I think that's how algorithms work, but don't quote me on this. It is not my expertise. All this to say, thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you outside.